0: Well, hey, glad you guys are here tonight. It was super exciting to hear that three of you are enjoying the Revelation series. That was uh, good. I love, I love the question about the shotgun. Just all these guys are going, yeah, like a shotgun. You guys were racing. You've never shot a shotgun in your entire life. But it was a manly thing to do, though, wasn't it? All right, so here's, here's the deal tonight. Uh, just to kind of let you know, we're going to shift gears tonight. Here's why. Uh chapter 9 of the book of, Revel, uh, of Romans uh, is probably one of the most controversial chapters uh, in the entire Bible and part of what we've been doing through this, through this series and sometimes I'm making you go back and you go Lynn why are you saying that again what you is to get us ready to hopefully navigate one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible together and get to the other side with some clear understanding and go oh my goodness I, why is that so hard for so many but in order for you and I to do that together, tonight we're going to talk about uh, some differing viewpoints to help us understand why Romans chapter 9 is filled with so much controversy. So it's going to be just a little bit different feel, a little bit different formatting as we do that together tonight. It's going to probably feel a little more like a Bible college class uh, as we do that just to kind of set up the opposing views of theology. And so I just want to say too, if you're here and you're visiting this it's your first shot at the mine and it's not your cup of tea, come back and try it again because again tonight night's just a little bit different uh, than what it normally probably would be. Here's the next thing I need to say to you, that as we unpack some some theology and some opposing theology together, I guarantee you there are really really good Christians in this room who love the Lord Jesus, who are going to be on the other side of what we're talking about. You're wrong, but it's okay. You love you love Jesus, and it's okay. Um, and this is why it's controversial because it, it is uh, a doctrine in which you can find passages in the Bible that appear to support both sides of the conversation, and Christians have argued about this for over four hundred years. So um, it's okay if you disagree. Matter of fact, we have staff members on our staff who would disagree with where I land theologically on this. Uh, It's all right. But you do need to know it is an important topic and it does change some of your behavior uh, as you follow Christ. So we're going to dig into that. We're going to spend time doing it. We're going to put on thinking caps tonight because you're going to have to kind of process some information together. And tonight is one of those nights you might just want to take a whole bunch of notes notes uh, because there may come a moment you'll come back and go, man, I, I wish I got someone asking me questions or someone's arguing with me about that. I wish I'd taken notes that night tonight, probably that night. All right, here we go. Let's have a word of prayer and uh, then we're just going to dig in a little bit. Uh, Dearest Heavenly Father, we just we come before you, and God, I ask that as we kind of dive into a topic tonight, that, that Christians really have struggled with each other over. Uh, seminary students sit uh, in student union buildings arguing about this. But yet, God, would you guide us and help us to be gracious and kind and good to each other, even if we disagree a little bit uh, tonight, and uh, and help us, if nothing else, to come to a better understanding of Scripture and maybe a better understanding of a different point of view. And so God, we give you the moment and uh, just guide us through the next hour together. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's the other thing I want to say. Uh, if you are struggling or disagree and you go, man, I, I just, I see it totally different than what we're talking about. It's okay, it's okay. And you have all my permission in the world to say, hey, Lynn, what about this verse? Or, you know, could we talk about this? Because I think it says something. We'll do that. What we're not going to do tonight is argue, okay? And so if we get to the point, or if you get to, you go, man, I really, really want to hash this out with Lynn. Uh, we'll set up a time. We'll have a cup of coffee and uh, you can wait and see if I show up. Okay, so uh, we'll see. On the deal. All right, so uh, here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk a little bit tonight uh, about the topic of Calvinism. Uh, some people would call it Reformed theology, and um, and then the question is 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 Calvinism an accurate portrayal of what Scripture teaches? Is there another viewpoint that's more biblical? Uh, how do you how do you land uh, this conversation? So let's just unpack kind of the the teachings of Calvinism real quick, uh, and then we can get uh, into discussing it. If, uh, if you wanted to just kind of uh, set an easy way to remember the things that Calvinists uh, teach, uh, you can use the anacronym TULIP. And my pen is falling apart. It's not good. Okay, T in TULIP stands for total... Depravity. If you've got your Bibles, real quick, jump with me uh, over to Romans chapter three. And guys, we're gonna we're gonna wear our fingers out tonight because we're gonna look at a ton of passages together. So Romans chapter three. Uh, Here's what total depravity is. Total depravity is this idea that says, look, when Adam fell in the garden, that subsequent tearing of who Adam was, the image of God, was a total tearing. And the reality is it left all the offspring of Adam totally depraved unable to see good for good, understand good for good, and left them without any real desire of the ability to acknowledge God or see God. Okay, Because they're totally depraved. Totally unable. And uh, the passage is Romans uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 10. And here's what it says. As it is written... There is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands there is no one who seeks God all have turned away they have to have together become worthless there is no one who does good not even one their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is in their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Run and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then take your Bibles and go over to Ephesians chapter 2. Which is going to be to the right in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 10. That's the wrong verse. Uh, let me see if I can find it real quick. okay all right so i can't i know it's there close but i'm missing it by a little bit it basically says there's a passage that says for you are dead in your trespasses and sin oh verse one Oh, there you go. Okay, so I knew I was close. So it's not 10, it's 1. I knew. All right. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. So here's the idea. A dead man can't respond, right? So if, if you are dead in trespasses and sin, then even if somebody came up and kicked you, You wouldn't respond because you're dead. You wouldn't feel anything. You wouldn't sense anything. Response would be completely uh, outside of anything you were capable of doing. And scripture says that before Jesus, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Okay? So that's total depravity. Uh, The second point of Calvinism is unconditional election. Okay, unconditional election is this idea, that God chose some people to be saved, that he looked over all of mankind and because they were dead and because nobody was ever going to choose to follow him, because that was impossible for them to do, that God then chose some out of mankind to be saved. But as he did that choosing, he did it unconditionally. In other words, he didn't say, I'm just going to choose blonde people, or I'm just going to choose rich people. Uh, He did it unconditionally, and he just randomly chose certain people out of all the people to be saved. So grab your Bible again and go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. So you should be really close there if you didn't close your Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Here's what it says. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us. So as he already decided for us what we were going to do. He predestined us for the adoption of sonship through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. In other words, you didn't actually decide to be a Christian. God decided for you that you were going to be a Christian. It's according to His pleasure and according to His will. To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given to us in uh, the ones He loves. In Him we have redemption through the blood and forgiveness in sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So in other words, this, this thing is simply God in His grace choosing and deciding who will be Christians. They're the elect. They're the chosen ones. Because nobody was going to choose on their own. Because we were all dead in our sins and trespasses. So unconditional election. Okay, any questions so far? Okay, anyone scared so far? Okay, all right, all right, good, all right, we're hanging on. All right, next one is limited atonement. Okay, limited atonement simply says this that because God knew that only some people would be saved, Jesus wasn't going to waste his blood on the cross. So Jesus only died for the people that he knew would eventually become Christians. Because he's not going to... Why would he waste his blood dying for other people? Because they're never going to use it. So when Jesus hangs on the cross, when he pays for sins, he only pays for the sins of the people that he knows will one day be Christians. Okay, And if you have your Bibles, go with me to Matthew uh, chapter 26... Matthew chapter 26 verse 28. Here's what it says. This is Jesus on the when he's doing Passover with his disciples. So it's that first uh that first Passover there that then becomes the communion that you and I celebrate. Uh verse 27 it says, "And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, "Drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many." And so the thought is, hey, see, so he didn't say he poured out his blood for everybody. He poured out his blood for many. Uh for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? So it's this idea that says, as Jesus dies, because he has foreknowledge, he only dies for those he knows will eventually become Christians, so that his blood isn't wasted on people who will never choose him, because they can't, because they're totally depraved. Okay? Uh, The next uh, tenet is irresistible grace. Uh, Irresistible grace is this idea. Because you were dead in your sins and trespasses, you were never going to choose God. God chose you. And that when that moment came that He decided to save you, You could not resist. You had to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, what God did was He came and saved you, and you were actually a Christian because He'd already put the Holy Spirit in you, so it's the first moment you actually came alive, and then you thought to yourself, I think I should believe in Jesus. But the reality is, you were already a Christian. Because Jesus had already saved you and there was no possible way for you to resist his choosing. So he made you a Christian and then you thought to yourself, I think I should become a Christian. Okay, irresistible grace. So grab your Bibles again, go with me to John. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 12. Here's what it says. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Ready, verse 13. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision. So we're saying, hey, look, there, see, there's no human decision here. Or of a husband's will, but born of God. God. So the idea is, again, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You couldn't possibly have made this decision. God saved you, and then once you were saved, you thought to yourself, I think I should believe. I think I should become a Christian. That was irresistible grace. You could have never decided not to be a Christian as much as someone who's not a Christian could never decide to actually become a Christian because they're dead in sin and trespasses, and you were made alive without making a decision. And then the final one uh, that's the tenant is called Perseverance of the Saints. And this part of it just simply says this. Since you had nothing to do with becoming a Christian, you didn't actually make a choice. God chose you. There's nothing you could decide or do to lose your salvation because it's God's decision. He's sovereign and you can't argue with God. So, once you're a Christian, you have to always be a Christian because God decided you're a Christian and you didn't decide it. Okay? So, those are the basic five tenets of Calvinism. So, let me ask you a question real quick. How many, how many of you know somebody who is Calvinistic in their belief, even if it's you? Okay, so we've, we've run into them. And part of what you need to know is lots and lots of Christians uh, hold this belief. That's why we're talking about it tonight. Lots and lots of churches in our area hold this belief. This is not some random thing. This is, this is dead and center within the discussion of Christians together. Okay? So, uh, here's what you need to know. Calvinism is actually a highly, highly logical, uh, theology. Uh, if someone is totally depraved and can never accept Jesus of their own will, well, then it's pretty logical to believe, well, then if they can't decide it, then God would have to decide it for them because they would never be able to choose it. And and if that's true, then there must be something irresistible. About, I mean, if God is choosing you, then it must be an irresistible. I mean, it's a very logical uh, system of belief. But here's what you also need to know is that because it is built premise upon premise or idea upon idea, if even one of the ideas is false, the whole system of belief collapses because it's built idea upon idea upon idea. Does that make sense? How many of us took algebra? Okay. So if you're doing an algebraic problem and you get one, one single, one of the, what's the right word for that? Not operation. What do you call just even the the numbers in it? Alright, anyways, we'll make it up. Alright, if you get, if you get even one number wrong as you begin to do an algebraic problem, you cannot possibly get to the right answer. Does that make sense? The same thing happens. If this theology is right, then it's wonderfully, it's wonderfully logical. But if even one premise of it is wrong, the whole theology breaks down that make sense? Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. So in case you haven't already guessed, I, I personally do not ascribe uh, to this uh, theology. Uh, let me see if I can walk you through uh, why I don't think that it's accurate to what the Bible uh, teaches together, and then we can field some questions. Okay, so let's start right back up to the top again. Let's go right back after total depravity. Uh, someone tell me out loud, someone who's got a microphone, do a microphone run. Someone tell me what total depravity means. So someone who thinks they heard, listen to what I just said and caught it. Nobody, nobody. Wait, wait, in the back we got it. Okay, so explain total depravity.
1: I think he said before Jesus you
0: were dead. Yep, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. So even if God had called you while you were dead in your sins and trespasses, you wouldn't have been able to respond because you were dead. Okay, totally depraved. All right, so let's go back to Romans chapter 3. Let's go back to the passage uh, that is often used for this doctrine Romans chapter 3 okay so again here I'm going to read it real quick here's what I want you to look for is there any place in this passage that says that someone cannot listen to God so here we go it's Romans chapter 3 verse 10 and it says as it is written there is no one righteous not even one there's no one who understands there is no one who seeks God all have turned away they have all together become worthless there is no one who does good not even one their throats are open graves their tongues are practiced to seek the poison of vipers is on their lips their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood ruin and misery mark their ways the way of peace they do not know There is no fear of God in their eyes. Sounds a little bit like Hollywood. Anyway, all right. So remember, the guy who's writing this, who's writing Romans, also writes uh, just a little ways over. So go back with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Here's what it says For although they knew God. Wait a minute, I thought they were dead. I thought they had absolutely no knowledge or no comprehension of God. Do you remember when we were in Romans chapter 1 where he said, Hey, wait, wait, wait. They are without excuse because what can be known about God is plain for them to see. They ought to be able to see the stars. They ought to be able to see the world we're in. And they should be able to understand that there's someone bigger than them, stronger than them, smarter than them, right? But I thought they were dead. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So maybe dead doesn't mean what we think dead means. What did we say dead was whenever you get to dead in Scripture? Remember we said Western culture always thinks of body. What does Eastern culture think? Separation. Separation. So when I use the analogy to say, hey, you were dead and if someone kicked you, you couldn't respond. You are thinking very Western when you do that. The author of the Bible would have said, no, 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 you're dead. You're separated from God. He wasn't thinking body at all. So it's a horrible illustration. To use with the passage. Matter of fact, Romans one here says they were thinking about God, and instead, though of responding positively, they chose to do what? What did they do when they when they they knew there was a God? Remember, they, he said, "Hey, they saw the they saw the things God had created, and instead of following God, they chose to do what to the truth? Do you remember? Suppress the truth. Remember, they pushed the truth away. So let me ask you a question. What happened to irresistible grace? If these guys were able to hear the truth and decide to push the truth away, I thought God was going to save them without any choice on their own. And yet Romans 1 says they heard the truth, they saw the truth, and they chose not to take the truth. That's a struggle for Calvinism, okay? All right, go with me now to another passage in Romans, to Romans chapter 2. Here's what it says, Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Whoa, 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 I thought they were dead. I thought they had absolutely no capacity to understand or to process good and evil. And yet here it says These guys are struggling Because they know what they ought to do intuitively We call that What do we call that thing within us That tells us things are right and wrong Our moral conscience And where do we get that Because remember that's different than animals Animals do not have a moral conscience You have never seen a tiger say Oh why did I kill that baby gazelle Why did I I'm such a mean tiger You've never seen that So where did humans get this moral conscience? From God. And we call that what? The image of God. Remember Genesis. Let us create man in our image. And when you and I were created in the image of God. It's not because we physically look like God. It's because he gave us the moral pinings of God. The characteristics. The thing that you and I call conscience. Is the fingerprint of God on every human soul. And the answer is this. When Adam sinned, was that was that image of God wounded? Absolutely. It'd be like going up to the Mona Lisa and throwing paint on it. And so it is marred. It is, it is marred in a horrible way. But the reality is the paint didn't cover any, everything. And you can still make out the basics of the Mona Lisa. Even as you and I can still make out the basics... Of the image of God in our lives, we call it conscience. So, this whole idea of being totally depraved is over and over again refuted biblically. Okay, matter of fact, let's do just a couple more passages, real quick on this. Um, go with me to John chapter three. This is a, you ought to know this one by heart. John chapter three. here we go John chapter 3 starting in verse 15 you ready to watch this To add that everyone who next word believes a Calvinist will tell you that belief happens after God saves you God saves you and they think to yourself hey I ought to believe but here it says to everyone who believes those people may have eternal life so what side did they just put eternal life and belief on which one happens first belief and then eternal life Because if you believe, then you may have eternal life. So it's absolutely the opposite of the Calvinist explanation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not stands condemned already. Because they did not what? Believe in the name of God's one and only son. And over and over and over and over and over again in scripture you will find that belief always precedes salvation. It's always on the front side. Matter of fact, belief is the energizing agent that brings salvation. It's never in scripture recorded that someone was saved and then believed. Okay? So that's total depravity. Let's go back to unconditional election. So the passage was Ephesians chapter 1. We told you we're going to hit a lot of passages tonight. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 4. So here's what it said again for those he chose in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us for the adoption of sons through christ jesus in accordance with the pleasure of his will so the calvinist comes back and says hey see that's unconditional election you were chosen you didn't choose him he chose you and as a matter of fact he predestined you to be saved He sat there before the foundation of the world and decided that you would be saved. You were predestined to be a Christian. But let's go back to the passage. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be what? Saved? What did it just say? Holy. Now remember as we've been doing this discussion over and over and over and over again. Let me see if I can find out how to do this. can you tell that I do not know what I'm doing all right okay all right no, I think I all right all right let's see if I got that. Remember over and over and over again we kept trying to talk about this idea that said hey chapters one through five you were getting saved but starting in chapter six, what happened next? Sanctification, Sanctification. this this process of becoming like Jesus. So in this passage when it says, he chose us in him to, from before the creation of the world to be holy. Is it talking about salvation or is it talking about sanctification? sanctification? Sanctification. And what it's saying in this moment is the moment God knew that you would be saved, he put in place a plan in your life to cause you to grow up and look like Jesus Christ. Before you were even born, before the foundation of the world, he looked ahead, saw that you would be saved. It's the reason he put you in the family he put you in. It's the reason you were born in the country you were born in. Because he immediately put together a plan to help you look more like Jesus. So you would be holy. So you would grow up into Christ-likeness. The passage has nothing to do with salvation. has everything to do with sanctification. Matter of fact, if you keep reading, it says, And he predestined us for the adoption of sons. And so then a Calvinist says, well, see, right there, he's predestined you to be a son of God. But that's not what it says. It says he predestined us to the adoption of sons. And do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the fact that said, matter of fact, let's go to the passage real quick. Um, go back in your Bibles to... Romans chapter 8. It's last week when we were together. Romans chapter 8. Verse 23. Watch this, you ready? Not only so... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await adoption to sonship. We say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You and I are already Christians, and yet the passage says we're waiting for our adoption. What did we say was adoption? It's our inheritance. It's the moment we get to heaven and get all the benefits of being a child of God. So when the passage there uh, in Ephesians says he predestined us to adoption as sons Again, it's not salvation. It's saying when he knew you'd be a Christian. He already set your inheritance up in heaven He predestined your inheritance Not your salvation your inheritance It's almost like when your parents wrote a will they predestined what you would receive upon their death But that will didn't make you a son or daughter. That will simply secured your benefits. Okay? All right. Let's look at a couple more passages here real quick on unconditional election. Uh, 1 Corinthians. I know I'm burning a few brains. Just let them burn. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, here's what it says. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who He predestined, to save those He chose, to save those who believed. And remember we said over and over and over again, belief always precedes salvation. Okay, here's another one. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Okay, remember we said that unconditional election The you and tulip Is God choosing some to be saved For no reason It's not because you were good looking It's not because you were ugly It's not because you were tall It's not because you were short He just randomly chose unconditional election 1 Timothy chapter 2 starting in verse 3 Here's what it says This is good and pleases God our Savior Who wants What's the next word? All people to be saved To which the Bible is saying if God was going to choose people to be saved and make them be saved guess how many he would have chosen all if he was going to violate some people's free will he would have violated everybody's free will He showed for all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth for there is one God one mediator between God and man and the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for how many people oh my goodness that bothers limited atonement doesn't it because it just said that Jesus died on the cross for how many people all people not just some and you know why he died for all people and not just some and that that wasn't wasting his blood because he was willing for all people to come and he wanted every person in the world to be able to stand in heaven and say if you had chosen to come my blood was there ready for you hmm. here's an interesting thing. i'm just gonna toss it out and I mean, consider, it's interesting that right now, Calvinism is actually on a way of revival right now in our country. Tons and tons of churches are picking up this doctrine again and going with it. The interesting thing is, is that it's very, very, very popular with millennials. It's popular with young people right now. And thats they're, they're the ones causing it to have kind of a new day. The thing that's intriguing to me is that there could not be a doctrine that was more anti the culture and the value of millennials... Then Calvinism. Think about this. Millennials are all about social justice, and they're all about things being fair, and they're all about not mistreating anybody or being prejudiced toward anybody and trying to rectify that socially. But if God unconditionally elected people, in other words, God randomly chose people to be saved, then the most fair way to do that would be if a, an equal percentage of people from every single people group were chosen to be Christians. Does that make sense? What he just said? All right, let me say it again out loud. If, if God is going to choose people to be saved, and if God is going to be fair, then he would say, all right, I'm going to choose five percent of all anglos to be christians i'm going to choose five percent of all asians to be christians i'm going to choose five percent of all arabs because if he was being fair he would choose equally does that make sense so let me ask you this question when you stop and consider how christianity is distributed in the world and if god actually chose people to be saved and it was god's decision and not their decision the only conclusion you could come up with is this God really hates Asians. Because look how low the percentages of believers are in Asian culture. And God must really have something against Arabs. Because you realize the percentage of Christians in Arab countries is less than two-tenths of one percent. And apparently he hates Eastern Europe. He does not like Africans. He does like African Americans in the southern part of the United States for some reason. Uh, He really, really likes Anglo's in the Bible Belt, but he hates Eastern Seaboard Anglo's. Right? I mean, stop and think about it. Because if God is choosing who gets saved and making them get saved, He's the most prejudiced person on the face of the earth and in all the universe, because the distribution is so unfair. Does that make? And I have no idea why this is popular in a group of people who want fairness. It's a horrible, horrible doctrine if you want fairness. But if you believe that people respond to the gospel, that they hear it, then the most logical thing is in the places where the gospel is most prevalent, in the places where Jesus is held up and taught the most, those would be the places that it would have the highest number of conversions. Hence the southern United States. Hence what's happening in the East Valley right now in Arizona. And it explains why in Eastern Europe where they almost refuse to talk about Jesus, you'd have almost no conversions. And it also explains why in Arab countries where it's illegal to talk about Jesus, you'd have almost no conversions. Because it's not God choosing people, it's people choosing God. It's not unconditional election. Okay? The next one real quick, limited atonement. Uh, let's go and look at the verse that we used again for explaining limited atonement. It's Matthew chapter 26. Guys, I know, I know we're throwing a lot at you once. It's going to pay off. I promise it's going to pay off. So Matthew chapter 26. Here was, here was the passage uh, that we used. Matthew chapter 26. Uh, Verse 28. It was Jesus, remember, uh, at the Passover feast. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, here's the problem. Does many mean only some? Does many have to be limiting? Or could I say, you know what, I've been to many restaurants... And all I'm saying by that is, I've been to lots. If you can say, I, man, I, I, I've, I, I've got so many relatives. And what you're not trying to limit it, you're just saying, I've got a ton of relatives. Right? So what if many is actually the expression of volume? And then when it says here, it's just saying, man, when Jesus died, and he was dying for tons of people. Every people. Let's go to a couple passages. 1 Timothy. Okay, so remember limited atonement. So we're still on the same track. Remember limited atonement. says Jesus only died for the ones he was going to choose to be saved because he wasn't going to waste his blood. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you go to the back of your Bible, work to the left, you'll find 1 Timothy eventually right after 2nd Timothy if you're coming from the back 1st Timothy chapter 2 verse 3 we already read this uh, passage but we're going to use it again here for limited atonement this is good and pleasing to God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth for there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all people go to Hebrews chapter 2 Hebrews is going to be to the right Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while while he walked here on the earth, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste of death for how many? Everyone. Everyone. And I'm just, I'm going to take a wild guess here, okay? I'm going to take a leap of faith. I'm guessing that everyone probably means everyone. I'm just guessing that, but I'm thinking that's where it goes. Uh, Let's go to 1 John. Again, to your right. 1 John, chapter 2. Starting in verse 2. Here's what it says. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, who would ours be? Christians. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And if you're teaching limited atonement, you've got a problem. Uh, you've got a struggle there. And guys, think about this. If God died only for some then he would be condemning people for not believing but even if they had somehow managed to believe there wouldn't be blood there to cover their sins how can you condemn somebody for something they could not possibly do what if you went to your five-year-old and you said to your five-year-old I need you to finish your algebra homework in the next hour and when you came back and they did not navigate their algebra homework you spanked them How unfair would that be? How unfair would it be for God to condemn people for not choosing Jesus when they could not possibly have done it? Okay, last one. Irresistible grace. This idea that says you, you didn't have a choice, God chose you, you actually became a Christian and then you thought to yourself, hey I think I should be a Christian because God called you and his call was irresistible and your heart was turned, the Holy Spirit came into your life and then you thought about God for the first time. Irresistible grace. So go with me now to John, the book of John, we were just in First John but go to the gospel of John. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 12. Here's what it says. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the sons of God. So they believed and then they became. Right? You get the moment. Belief preceded the becoming. Go with me to Matthew chapter 23. I told you I'd wear out your fingers tonight. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. This is Jesus just before He's getting ready to die. He's standing on the Mount of Olives. He looks across... From the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem. And here's what Jesus says out loud in the presence of the disciples. Matthew chapter 23 verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I longed, I ached to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought God's grace was irresistible. And yet Jesus says here, you have resisted me for thousands of years. You have fought me on this. The truth is, most of us in this room, if we were even to chronicle our own salvation experience, we would say, man, I know God spoke to me when I was a 10-year-old and I just said no. And then I was a teenager and I was at Bible camp and I know I wanted to walk forward and I wanted to ask Jesus and then I, I said no. And many of us will say, I resisted God over and o- I was 26, you know, before I actually made the... Because I had a history of resisting the call of God in my life. And here's what you need to know. When doctrine doesn't line up with reality then I usually have not figured out doctrine yet because doctrine will always explain reality. It'll help me understand the world I live in because doctrine is always the explanation of God and how he created things. So it will always make my worldview clearer, not fuzzier when I get to good doctrine. All right, so let's stop there on that part of it. So let me, let's just do this. We talked about this idea of Calvinism, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace. Who cares? Who cares on the deal? Calvinism comes from this very high view of God. So you've got to accept it. It's this idea that says God is powerful, he's smart, he's strong, and nobody can resist God. And so whatever God wants is what should happen. It's called Sovereignty. That God is sovereign and He's in control of everything, and it's this high view of who God is at the end of the day. The problem is if God is sovereign and in charge of everything, then there's a whole bunch of yucky stuff in this world that I need to blame God for. There are children who are abused, there are women who have been abused. If God is sovereign and in charge of everything, then I need to have a talk with God because there's some really unfair ugliness in this world. And I'm going to suggest that it is more accurate to say God has the strength to be in charge of everything and he has the smarts to be in charge of everything. But he chooses so that you and I can have free will to not be in charge of everything. And gives you and I the freedom to make our own decisions and to either choose Him or reject Him. Because if He made you and I be Christians, that's called slavery. And you and I would never know what love genuinely was. Because love comes when I choose Him, not when I'm forced or He's forced on me. Does that make sense? Alright. So let's, let's do this. If you have a Calvinistic perspective, how would this potentially maybe change your behavior? How would this change how you behave as a Christian? Anybody got any ideas? Think about it for a second. If I believe that God's in charge of everything, that God's going to get everything he wants because God planned it, he foreknew it, he predestined it all, how is that going to change my behavior as a Christian? All right, so let's get some hands up. What do you think?
1: Well, there would be no point to sharing the gospel because God's going to zap. He's
0: going to zap. Okay, so listen to that. Okay, so here's a here's a here's why this figuring this out and where you and I stand on it is critical because if God chose everybody and is going to force them to be Christians, why would you and I even put in the effort to share the gospel? Because whether I share it or don't share it, God's going to save them anyways. So why risk your co-worker laughing at you? Why why risk somebody um, taking your job away because you were being a witness on the Why would you do that? If God's going to save who he's going to save anyways, why would you and I be willing to take on any grief or any suffering to share the gospel story? And you just need to know that Calvinism puts a huge dent in an evangelism movement. You, you have never found a Calvinistic movement that has lasted more than one generation. Because why Why tell people if they're going to get saved anyways? What else? How else would this potentially affect you? Why, Any, waste, time why waste time praying? If God has made every decision already and has already decided everything that's going to happen, how could prayer even help? Right? I mean, if God is... Completely in charge He has no place for free will And he's already chosen What's going to happen in his sovereignty Why would you waste your breath praying? Prayer couldn't change a thing So what would happen to your prayer life? It disappears, it'd go dead And then I'll just toss that We got one, what, hand up? Okay, we got another hand up
1: Why go to church?
0: Well, they would say so you can still learn you can still learn and grow and become more Christ-like. So they, that would they would still, you know, yeah.
1: Well, why if you don't feel that love of God because you don't, it's not really a love relationship anymore. It's a, it's an, in obedience that you don't even control. Yeah. Why would you show love to others? It wouldn't. Be, it would be very hollow, and you wouldn't have a relationship, a personal relationship with Christ or the Lord. Yeah.
0: I do I think I think it puts a big kink in this whole concept of loving God
1: I really do it would negate why we live up to the Christ-like standard there'd be no point really to uphold ourselves to the right standard in ethics well
0: I, I think what would come back and I, I don't want to mis, I don't want to mislead in any way I don't want to misrepresent I, You will find Calvinists tend to be very, very dedicated followers of Christ. And there's probably Calvinists in the room, so I don't want to... you know, Again, I want to be very careful, and I'm not trying to bash anybody. I just disagree theologically. But I think you're going to find Calvinists tend to be really, really sincere in following Christ and tend to be very, very holy, living Christians. Uh, they're very dedicated to the Word of God. They they really are. So, yeah.
1: Can you get... Um john chapter 3 verse 18 and clearly it's talking choice whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not stands condemned Hmm. clearly the word is talking about choice yeah so i'm not sure how they
0: look or get beyond that what what again what the response would be is whoever believes will only be the ones chosen and who does not believe will be the ones not chosen So there's some, you know, there's some filling in in the conversation there. But that's that was how that would be explained. Whoever believes would only be those who God saved and chose, predestined. Yep.
1: Salut. Was that on? Uh Huh? Yeah. Who would absolutely know where they fell? Are they saved or not saved? So it's it's
0: it's interesting that you brought that up because the pilgrims. Uh, who came to America, remember the pilgrims? Uh, You may or may not know this, the pilgrims were Calvinist. And matter of fact, they were what we call hyper-Calvinist. They were extreme Calvinist. And if you read a lot of of pilgrim literature, some of it is prayers in which they say, God, would you test me and tell me for sure whether or not I'm saved? Because I think I'm saved, and I think I've chose you, but I don't know if you chose me. So can you tell me if I'm saved or not? Now that's only a hyper-Calvinist view, because most Calvinists would say, if you're thinking about God and if you believe in God, you could only do that because he had saved you. But you're right. There is a, an extreme view of it that then begins to the doubt salvation. Yep. Okay.
1: Would it be somewhat elitist in premise?
0: Um, I, I, I would only say maybe in the same sense that the Jews sometimes were elitist. Hey, we're God's chosen people. And then, you know, the Christians would then be now God's chosen people. But in fairness, again, I want to say in fairness, part of what Calvinists would say back to me and to some of us is, you're actually saying that there's something you did to get salvation. You believed. So didn't you do a work in order to be saved? So isn't that unbiblical? That you did something in order to be a Christian. Now my answer is that when a person believes what you're believing is I can't do anything. I, I am absolutely incapable and my belief is an admission of utter failure to bring myself to God and an, an acknowledgement that only God can save me. Right? So I'm acknowledging my inability to do anything when I believe. But again, it's that question. If you're believing, have you done something to earn your salvation? Yeah.
1: My turn. Okay, so uh, two things. Um, sure. Mark 1.17, Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers and men. Mm-hmm. So a person becomes an evangelist because they're a follower of Christ. It's an outcome of a disciple. Because it's a call to discipleship and the thing that happens to a disciple is they fish for men as a result of following Christ. Right. Okay, and then the second thing. So is,
0: before, you, before you move on that, so give, give me the question in the statement.
1: Well, the, the point was made um, that if a person has a Calvinistic viewpoint, why would they evangelize?
0: What they would say is, and I want to be, again, guys, I, you know where I stand on it. I want to be absolutely fair, because I guarantee you there's people in this room who would be more Calvinistic in their belief. Uh, A Calvinist would say, you evangelize out of obedience, because you don't know who God has chosen, and God told you to go talk about him, so out of obedience to God, you go evangelize because, because he told you to. The problem with that, or the thing that takes motivation out, is when you say, but they're going to be saved whether I do it or not, so why am I doing this thing that's so hard and has such potential embarrassment. And so in practicality, it begins to wither. But there is no Calvinist who would say, don't go share your faith. Don't go evangelize. They would say, you do this because you were commanded to do it. And you're supposed to do it. And you don't know who's going to get saved. Okay, so second question.
1: The second question is, uh, John 10, uh, starts in 1025. It goes on for a few verses. It says, Jesus answers them I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name these testify of me but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep mm-hmm. my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me right. and I give them eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand I and the father one so you know so when you read that there you know he's distinguishing his sheep and those that aren't his sheep and he says that my sheep hear my voice you know and i give them eternal life
0: so actually the verse you just quoted is one that calvinists would quote and uh, and they would quote it to say see there are some people who are his sheep because god chose them and there are some people who are the goats and that's why they're not listening because they were not chosen and so that's what jesus is referring to the reason you don't believe me is because you're not sheep you're goats because god didn't choose you
1: And I have just a quick question. On 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, These three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. How is there any hope then? How is there any love and how is there any faith? If these three remain and there's the greatest, of course, is love. How is mm-hmm.
0: that? Now, again, to be, to be, to, there's no place in which they're going to discount faith and hope and love they're just simply saying god has decided all of it you're not deciding it god's decided it and they again i, I want to guys i, I want to be very careful tonight really, really 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 good christians believe the other side of this topic this is this this is a this is a theology that has been argued in the church for 400 years and i guarantee you if you're not a calvinist you've got friends you've got christian friends who are calvinists who are on the other side of this doctrine i guarantee you that you do because it's not it's not a dumb doctrine it's, it's it's there's a very good logic to it and very very good capable christians guys on my staff gals on my staff believe this doctrine it's not and it's not as black and white as it you may feel like it is tonight it's it is a discussion in the church that has not been solved okay so we got hands up Oh, thank you. Yep. Um,
1: if it, if grace... I'm going to try to say it sensitively. Okay. Um, if grace is given to us by our faith in the righteousness of Jesus, which I believe is what the Bible states, okay. and human nature is such that people may feel then believe in their righteousness by a sense of entitlement? Wouldn't that be sort of on the other side of faith in the righteousness of Jesus?
0: Yeah, so a Calvin, the Calvinistic view would say that those who are not Calvinist are just are the ones living on the side of entitlement. That, that you have something to be proud about because you figured Jesus out. You you were the one that was smart enough to hear the message when everybody else was not listening and not understanding. And so you're the one that has something to be proud about if you think that belief came from you. Okay, So what they would say is, no, the way to be humble is to say, I would have never figured this out. I would have never responded to Jesus. And that's why it's actually humble of me to believe that Jesus saved me without any any input from me. And, and he did that for me even when I didn't want it in my life. And that's the humblest view to have. So and that would be one of the arguments that that this idea that you believe in Jesus and that activates God's grace in you is, is kind of a proud way to think about it because it makes you smarter than the rest of other people who don't figure it out. Yeah.
1: So I can understand what you said um, just there. But how do you how what is the argument from a Calvinistic viewpoint then for the people that God chose not to save and chose because if he chose not to save them he chose to condemn them then right what what is the
0: so what a Calvinist would say is everybody was heading to hell so every because of what Adam did everybody was headed to hell it was God's grace and mercy that he chose some. It was only his kindness that he rescued some. So it wasn't that he sent them there. They, they got there because of Adam's sin and the fall. And then God in his grace chose some. Right? Which I think is contradictory to the scriptures. that says God's heart would be that all would come to repentance. That all would know him. That he died for everybody. But that, that would be the answer. Everybody was going to hell. God in his grace chose some to be his children. Yeah.
1: Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where it talks about grace. You were saved by grace. Through faith. Through faith. And it's not, you can't take credit for this. Yep. So, um, I believe that salvation, there is a working in a person's heart when they come to Christ. Whether it's, I don't believe it's um,
0: uh, from the total Calvinistic perspective. But I also don't believe that without God working in our hearts, we come to the point where we figure it out. Right. And and you and I would absolutely agree that it's only the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that finally brings me to the point of decision. And that point of decision may be to reject, or it may be to accept, but it's, it's really clear in Scripture that it is always the work of the Holy Spirit that draws men and women to Christ. Absolutely. What, I, what, what Where the Calvinist and where I would disagree is, as the Holy Spirit draws, does He cross the line and make me make the decision? Or does He draw me to a level of conviction that says, okay, you're at a point where you can make a decision now, now decide. And I would say that I believe the Holy Spirit draws us up, brings us to a level of conviction, and says, all right, you're either going to walk out the back door and forget what you just heard and reject Jesus, or you're going to pray a prayer right now and ask the Lord in your heart. And that's my best understanding. of But I agree with you 100%. Nobody has come to God ever that the Holy Spirit was not involved in drawing them. Unequivocally. Yep. So when we know that God is omniscient and... Yep outside of time, the time of yep. the created thing. Therefore, he sees the end. Yes. He knows who will come to yes. Jesus. Therefore, the, would you say the non-Calvinist viewpoint would be to say that the, that the concept of predestination is God's understanding and, and foreknowledge of where you will decide, not the causal force that makes you decide sure. But the knowledge of what you will decide yeah so matter of fact we're just about out of time so let's wrap it up on that because that's a great insight on your part I'm actually going to lean to the idea that predestination has much more to do with sanctification Romans chapter 8 uh, verse 20 and 29 says um that all things work to the good for those who love God, for those who've been called according to purpose. And then it says he would predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So I think predestination is always about Christ likeness. It's always about that. But here's here's what you said that I think is really, really a great insight. The Calvinist believes that because God knows what will happen, his knowing makes it happen. It causal it's a causal effect. I would say to you that just because you know something's going to happen doesn't mean that your knowledge caused it. Okay, let me give you a quick illustration, we'll be done. I knew, I knew that when my wife's mother died, I knew that when she heard that, it was going to make her cry. I knew that. I mean, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? And yet I told her, Did my knowing that she was going to cry cause her to cry? Or did her mom dying cause her to cry? Right? So knowledge, just because I know something doesn't mean I made it happen by knowing. And just because God knows you're going to be a Christian, His knowing that you're going to be a Christian didn't make you a Christian. He just knew it. He knew it perfectly. But that knowing didn't force you to be a Christian. Does that make sense? All right, here's the deal. We got, we're out of time. Uh, we're going to stop. This is going to pay off next week because chapter 9, which if we hadn't had this discussion, was going to leave us just going, what in the world just happened? And suddenly I think chapter 9 is going to be crystal clear for us as we go through next week. Okay, so we just saved ourselves a lot of pain. Here's the deal. I want to say this out loud. If somebody in this room leans more Calvinistic than I do, I love you, I love you, and I just want to say to you, I I hope I didn't in any way disrespect or make you feel feel like I was being unfair in my conversation. Because here's what I'm going to acknowledge. Really, really good Christians and really, really smart Christians, really smart Christians, dedicated to believe more Calvinistically than I do. They do. And it's why this thing's been argued about for hundreds of years. But I just wanted you to be able to sit in the room when you hear this information and be able to respond to it biblically and to know this on the deal. And again, because there's lots of Christians in our area that are going to lean more Calvinistic uh, than, than I do on the deal. Okay, um, so we did that. Thank you for doing this a little differently than tonight. Let's pray real quick and we'll be done. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for the conversation. Thank you for uh, kind of... Uh, digging deep into our minds tonight and causing us to kind of grapple with some stuff that we aren't normally uh, used to doing. God, I'm going to ask that it pay off. I'm going to ask that we, just, we got a little bit of taste of what it means to do systematic theology together and a little taste of what seminary feels like when uh, you're in one of those classes. God, would you use the information that we've had to just make us that much more sure of our faith and that much more able to defend uh, what we believe? And this I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you've got questions, if you want to talk and give me a hard time, I'll be at the front. All right.